So if I were, if you and I were having a conversation, and there were just like a lot of things going wrong, and we started labeling all of them, and I were to suddenly be like, the boiler is broken, my tires on my car are flat, our pet's heads are falling off. Does anyone in here know where that last line comes from? Dumb and dumber, right? Now, some of the rest of you would have just been like, wow, she got real dramatic there at the end, right? You know? Now, um, why I say this is because I uh, was raised in a youth group where not only did we learn about Jesus and the gospel according to Jesus, but literally at every single youth group retreat, we watched Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> what this taught me about Jesus, I'm not quite sure. I will work on a second dis dissertation on that topic, never. Anyway, all, what I'm trying to say in telling you this uh, kind of asinine story about my life is that each of us have been formed and raised in different cultures and different time periods, even though we're all existing in the same current one. Some of you have memories of when JFK was assassinated. Some of you have memories um, related to Nixon. Some of you have memories about the Beatles, right? Some of you remember what it felt like to be a teenager in the 80s cheering for new kids on the block. Right? Some of you have all sorts of different aspects of how you were raised. But if you and I have overlapping kind of time frames in which we were, were raised, experiences that have shaped us, we have some common language, right? Some common phraseologies. Like if I say, never forget, for some of you that may call to mind 9-11, right? This is just the way life and culture and humans work. We have shared stories, shared moments, shared experiences. Andy and I, when we uh, went to Paris for our 10th anniversary, one day we were walking along the Seine, and we, I don't even know how this happened, right? Um, Andy grabbed my hand, and he went, one, two, three, and he said, I love you. And I uh, clenched his hand back four times, one, two, three, four, and it means, I love you too. And ever since then, we can be in any space and we can three times or four times back and we don't have to say anything, right? That's the beauty of community and human story and the way that stories shape and hold our lives. While that is so wonderful, there is another side of it that can happen when one story becomes the only story, the authoritative story that must be the story for all persons. In her TED talk that was released a number of years ago now, uh, The Danger of a Single Story, some of you may have heard that, this precise thing is named, of what happens when one story becomes the story that must be everyone's story. Now here's the thing, the reality is, even as we read the Jewish and Christian scriptures, that the humans have always had diversity. You see this in the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible itself. There were different communities. This was an oral tradition of people who were all wrestling with similar questions. Who is this God? Who are we? Who are we supposed to be? 
And they had their own unique tribal experiences, familial experiences, individual experiences that shaped this. So these threads get woven together over time, and these tradi traditions are brought together. Some of them, they come together, they're cohesive in amazing ways. And at times you see that the story is actually multivocal. Now this remains to this day an important way that Jewish people interpret the Bible is that it allows for a multivocal experience where we come together and say, oh, well, have you thought about this? And what about that? And what about this? And the reality is that the majority of the Christian tradition of interpretation of the Bible has been shaped by a paradigm that says there is only one right way to read. Okay? So these traditions are actually in conflict. But I want to surface that there has been a long set of both experience and history of interpretation and just the reality of human experience is that there's diversity. You see this, for instance, in some of the, uh, the texts within the Bible. So in Nehemiah, there tends to be a more xenophobic thread through the text. And you read things like, oh, no one who comes from this line will ever sit on the throne. And yet, who sits on the throne? Well, someone who comes from that line and like, seems like God likes it, right? So this is not to say that there can't be truth or we can't ascertain deep, deep understanding of who God is or who we are. But I think it can become an invitation for us to not demand that there is a single story or force ourselves into a single story but be encountered by a God who is bigger than any single story, which is what we actually affirm, right? Right? The right answer at church is right to that one. Yes, that would be a, right. Like, God is bigger than all the things we technically affirm. And that's a little terrifying, though. So, like, I totally get it and have a ton of empathy for the notion and the reality that letting our most sacred beliefs and experiences of God, our names of God, get questioned or have other people have different ones. That's a really normal human thing. If I have had a profound experience and way of understanding the world, myself, and God, and you're like, mine is radically different. Sometimes I could be like, well, well, are you trying to get rid of my story? Or like, what if mine doesn't have any validity? And what I want to invite us, and I think the text and the many names of God therein invite us, is like, listen, if you are a person who's like, Jesus is my name for God, and that is the one that shapes me, good for you. I'm super stoked about it, and it's a really good one to pick as a Christian, right? If you're like, no, God is spirit, has deeply shaped me, amen. And I hope you share your experiences of the spirit to help some of us who like that terrifies a little bit to open ourselves up a little more, right? So instead of this needing to be a thing where it threatens us, how can this diversity of names of God, of the diversity of our actual stories and identities become a thing of beauty that deepens and enriches us? That is my, to quote, Christian hermeneutical preamble of sorts to dealing with this text from Genesis in the name of God, El Shaddai. Because what I want to do today is to invite and wonder with you at a lesser known translation or way of thinking about God with the name El Shaddai.
El Shaddai, again, is one of the names that we find throughout the Bible for God. El is the common way in the ancient Near Eastern languages of the Canaanite languages, um, the Ugritic, of referring to God. So El, and then it would often be like God of this place. So the God, you know, Bethel, God, the people met God in that place, the house of God. Places were named after the God who was worshipped or known or to have been experienced there. So El Shaddai is God something, right? Now, there has been some um, discussion and disagreement throughout time about what El Shaddai can mean. And why I'm doing this, other than it's like kind of interesting for those of us who are a little nerdy, is because I think that the way we name God and how we understand the names of God can open us up or close us down, and so let's wrestle together. So Shaddai, um, some have argued more recently that Shaddai comes from Shad. We see in modern Hebrew that the plural of this is breasts. That in fact, that it may have a range of meaning potentially referring to the mountains which in the ancient Near Eastern world, like if you read Psalm 46, it says, I lift my eyes to the mountains. From whence does my help come? That's the, the most modern English translation there. I clear, clearly have in my own head. From where does my help come, right? Uh, that is because at that time, the people believed that the heavens were in the mountains. You know, right? Like they didn't have uh, rocket ships that go out into the outer universe, and I'm clearly out of the depth of my own knowledge of the way that the universe works. So, you know, we can see pictures from the outer space, is what I'm trying to say. They didn't have that. And so, what's the highest height? Well, it's, it's in the mountains, it's in the clouds. That's where the heavens are, that's where the God or gods reside. And so, God of the wild, God of the mountains is a possible range of translation. Um, it gets, though it ends up being translated and then through later textual interpreters and some of the prophets as God the Almighty is one of the ways that this has been translated. Particularly then we see in the Septuagint, uh, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, it's translated as God Almighty. And then, um, and in Latin, it's actually God omnipotent. So you think about those songs that you sing, God omnipotent, because you sing that all the time. But if you sing some old hymns, you sing it, right? God omnipotent, that comes from a Latin rendering of a decided upon translation of the Hebrew, okay? But then this other option is the idea of God as the breasted one. The argument for this is not only the usage of the word, or the word itself, but it's also um, in reference to because where El Shaddai appears, which it appears 48 times in the Hebrew Bible, throughout Genesis, which it first occurs in the text that Christian read for us, Genesis 17.1, um, it's in connection with fertility. All of the five times of Genesis, it's when God shows up and says, you will be fruitful and multiply. So a more recent modern scholarly argument has been that this is where we should actually see this as the most historic and oldest translation or understanding of this as referring to God as the breasted one, the, the idea or the connection around fertility, God saying be fruitful and multiply. 
We see this also in the, um, the book of Job, is where God as El Shaddai appears many times, which I'm looking at one of our members uh, here, Jim, because Jim Fisher came up to me at one point and was like, do you know that El Shaddai is the God everywhere in the book of Job? Now, some of you might be like, I came to church for this. What are you talking about, Sarah? Now, I think this is really exciting because in 2006, I wrote a paper in which I argued, argued for the equality of men and women out of the end of the book of Job. This might not be blowing your mind, but I'll tell you why it's lovely from my vantage point. Okay, so if the God of Job, okay, so Job is the story where he loses everything and all of his family dies and everything is terrible and awful. His friends initially are good at comforting him, then they're terrible, then everything's really hard, and eventually God shows up and then God restores. Okay, so in most English translations, this is all you are God, God Almighty sort of thing. And I think about how at the end of the book of Job, what happens is God restores Job's fortunes. And in so doing, the only time, there's only one other time in the Bible where women inherit along with the sons. And this is in the time when God restores. And so what a beautiful idea of like this God, the El Shaddai, the one who cares and nurtures, is the one who comes alongside of Job in the midst of his suffering and restores back to him life and a life that is for everyone. I just wish someone had told me El Shaddai could have meant this back in 2006 and I definitely wouldn't have won the Evangelical Theological Society Student Paper Award that year because that would have been a little bit too controversial. <clears throat> right? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, thank you for forbearing with me today. Um, so what I'm just trying to do here is I'm wanting us to wonder at and think about um, our own stories, our own experiences, our own images of God, and how, how can they keep being expanded? How can we keep being curious about who this God is and thinking about the ways that names shape how we understand who God is? Some of you know that one of the reasons I love doing my own translations of the Bible is because very few people, very infrequently throughout history has anyone who has a body like mine or any sort of experience close to mine been involved in translating the Bible, in teaching the Bible, or interpreting the Bible. Now that is not to say that there isn't beauty or truth or goodness in those histories of interpretation. But from my vantage point, our experience of faith, and I think many have had this, my experience of my faith has been blown open in beautiful ways when you say to me, hey, Sarah, here's how I've experienced God from my seat. We are people as congregationalists who affirm that the Spirit speaks in all of our stories. And so what does it mean when we take our own stories into deep conversation with our faith and then say, here is God as I see God from my seat. How do you see it? And we let that enrich us. For instance, for me, through my own experience of being able to birth Josie and um, being able to breastfeed, which I, I'm not using this to make it uh, now new multi or univocal story, this is just an augmenting of story, okay? Um, there was a time one day when I was uh, breastfeeding Josie, and I was looking down at Josie, 
And it just hit me how my whole life I had been tutored to believe that the gaze of God was male. And yet I was like, what's the gaze Josie gets the most right now? I mean, Andy has a phenomenal gaze and loves that kid like nothing else. But my gaze matters too, right, in that formation. And so again, if God is not just one small thing, but God is huge, what does it mean to think about the experience of childbirth? This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you as the blood that gives life to Jesus, who then institutes a new covenant. He came from his mother Mary, and he, as God embodied, opens himself up to us. How do these ways of thinking and opening ourselves open us in new ways? Going particularly to this text in Genesis 17, as you read it in the translation that we had today, it is clear that it is a passage dealing with being fruitful and multiplying. In fact, uh, an aspect that I wasn't aware of, as a person named Sarah, you'd think that maybe I would have picked this up along the way, but I hadn't. That Sarai, Sarai as Sarah was first named, And here in Genesis 17, following the text that Christian read, Sarai is going to be renamed Sarah. Well, Sarai was actually the name of a barren mountain in the land. I didn't know that. The text in 16, which is usually translated as the mother of nations, um, but literally it says she'll come to embody entire nations. So this imagery of infertility, fertility, and that God, El Shaddai, has shown up and will bless them um, and will make them fruitful is present in this text. So in terms of why this matters and kind of what I'm wanting to wonder at, first of all, I doubt that for many of us, we've had a view of God that we learned in church anyway, that was deeply shaped by a notion like El Shaddai. You think of that song um, by Amy Grant that some of you know, El Shaddai, El Shaddai, da 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 da. I don't know the rest of the words until you get to I will praise and lift you high. But that actually, like, what a nurturing, loving, like, I don't hear that as God Almighty, God Almighty, which there's a place for that, but that's not that song. So what does it mean to open ourselves to think about El Shaddai, the God who is the breasted one, the God of the mountains, the God who holds us close and cares for us in that sort of an intimate way? How can that continue to open us up to think about who is this God, who we name as Jesus, who we name as love? And I think, too, by wrestling with these different images of God, different histories of translation, it can help us to be able to hold more space for one another. Oh, you think that about communion? I think this, cool. It's okay, we can still be in community. Oh, I follow Jesus, you don't. Okay, I don't have to you know, harm you. Those are important skills, I think, for us to develop as Christ followers, and I think we can begin to develop that as we hold space for multivocal stories, including our own. The final thing that I think is fun is as we start to wrestle with different ways of thinking, say if you trace this idea of El Shaddai from Genesis into Job, and then you go forward to the story that many of you know when Jesus meets with the Canaanite woman, right? And she says, I worship on this mountain, breasts, mountains, right? These are the ranges. Do you worship here? We worship here. We've been fighting with one another about whose God is the most almighty. And Jesus says, hey, shh. 
The time is coming and is now at hand when the true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. What if we just laid down some of those weapons and instead said, no, this is the God. It's not about that mountain or this and which mountain is stronger and taller and better. It's about the God who holds and nurtures and cares for us all. The God who in Jesus has called us to love in spirit and in truth. These are just some of the fun things when we start playing with it that I think can open us up, hopefully, more to God, more to love, more to the work of the Spirit, and more to the beauty of how God has been present in our own stories and how God has shown up. So whatever you name this God, whatever in these coming weeks as we explore different names, I hope that you will hear God as a multivocal named God who we hear more as we know each other's stories. And in that way, may we be a people who nurture and love and hold space. Amen. <laughs>